The Bell's Iceman Cometh Challenge. 5,000 riders are here to overcome one of the world's toughest mountain bike races, a grueling 30-mile race through the forests of northern Michigan. Thank you to our friends at Bells. We're so grateful for your continued support and collaboration. We look forward to enjoying a few samples throughout the show, and of course, at the Bells Iceman Cometh Challenge this November. Was that a bear, or a cow, or a banana we saw flying through the woods? No, it was just some of the folks from Trek Bikes. Check out their new bikes and gear. It's always as fun and awesome as they are. Thank you, Trek, for your longtime support and sponsorship. We can't wait to see what Trek Bikes will bring to Iceman this year. Cambium Analytica, we are grateful for your support and thank you for the continued collaboration. Stop by and say hi to Cambium Analytica at the Expo and Celebration Zone. See you out on the trails. Brian Motter here today. Um, pretty excited to talk to you about Iceman and all things bikes. Um, Brian, where, where are you today? Where, where are you talking to us from? I'm I'm actually in Prescott, Arizona, and it, it's weird to be talking about Iceman because today is the first day where it's actually like sunny, 60 degrees. I just got back from a, an amazing ride with my wife, so it's weird after such a big winter of snow here to be switching gears and thinking about Iceman again. Yeah, that's not very common for you guys out there. I, I know it's been a little bit colder and rainy and um, usually you're getting away from the Midwest to go hide in the sun for the winter, right? Exactly. But I, I did a couple really epic, snowy, gnarly rides just kicking off the base miles this year. So always good to keep the uh, Iceman skills tuned up. You never know when it's going to be beneficial. Yeah. A little bit different with all the elevation you get out there, but Definitely some skills that you can bring back, which uh, I'd watch out everybody else. I don't know if, know if you need any more skills or experience in that kind of weather. But, um, yeah, we really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. I've got Matt Hasse as well today um, with us. Yeah, Brian, we've, we've known each other through some family friends for quite a few years now, but we were just talking before. I mean, when we talk about your experience level at Iceman, we, I think we landed on 25 years straight of competing and being at the the sharp end of the race so quite a few uh quite a few podiums in there and quite a few race wins yeah it's been amazing i never you know when i first did iceman i think it was 1993 was my first year which might have been the fourth edition of iceman and yeah i i never in my wildest dreams would have imagined you know whatever it's been now 28 years later that I'm still doing it still loving it and and still having fun when I go to Trevor City what was it about the the first one or what what got you and what got you into it to go to that first Iceman so I think the the race itself you know we totally green we had no idea what we were doing um my buddy Skylar Reeves and his dad camped and it was like a massive snowstorm it was 25 degrees and these guys are sleeping in tents like had no idea i raced in sweatpants like real cotton sweatpants like frozen solid freezing cold 
all of our bodies and the crew had hypothermia. And for some reason afterwards, we were like, that was great. Best race ever. So just one of those like full adversity, but an amazing experience. And we had no idea what we were doing, you know, so we wanted to come back and do it again and again and again. Did everyone finish that first time? Oh, I, I think there might've been a DNF or two. Luckily I made it to the finish line, but I think the, so I'm from Pinckney, Michigan, and there was a local shop there called Village Cyclery. Um, It's actually where we met some friends named the Beermans who brought us to the first race and kind of got us going that first year back in 1993. I think the owner of that shop ended up with some pretty severe hypothermia and did not finish. Oh my gosh. The guy that's supposed to be the mentor out there and helping you guys all get to the finish line, like do this, do that. He's can't take his own advice. <laughs> that's but you know, ni- nineteen ninety three. I that was a long time ago. There wasn't that much clothing technology. There wasn't that much knowledge about the sport, or you know, none of us knew what we were doing back in ninety three. So it was a kind of a learning experience for everybody. Yeah, I'm yeah. curious what size wheels and uh, how wide were your bars back then? I mean, the the uh, bikes look entirely different nowadays. Yeah, I think that year I might have actually been a borrowing um, a Proflex from from the shop. It was like the hot new bike in 1993. I think some Danish guy had won world championships on the bike, so everybody wanted one. Um, but yeah, definitely 26-inch wheels and definitely 560 for the bar width. Pretty darn skinny. Pretty yeah. darn arrow back in the day when we didn't know arrow <laughs> was important. Was that uh, was that a hardtail, I'm guessing, or was it a full suspension? So Proflex was like the one of the very first full suspension bikes that had one of those probably frozen solid elastomers that didn't work at all in the rear, but it was yeah, it was painted red and it, it was the coolest bike around for sure. Yeah. Did it did it make a difference that day? No, no, it was like, it was frozen solid like a rock. So no, it didn't work. Front was probably equally as bad, but, you know, back in the day, uh, it was cool. And 1993, I was probably a freshman in high school. So I thought getting to borrow a free bike for a a new race was pretty amazing. Yeah. And full rigid's pretty fast. So, (laughs) you know, it it might be the right bike for Iceman. Um, I don't know if you've done that since, but maybe we'll get into that. But was there anything that stands out on that first one, like a hill that, you know, I, you had to go back and attack the next year or some, a piece of single track that you got caught behind like 50 people or I know it was a much different race back then, but yeah, no, honestly, nothing like more the war stories afterwards, hanging out in the hotel room, like how, what just happened? How did we do that? Uh, I'm so cold. I'm so cold that, that kind of thing. I think we were just too new to even, to even be aware that there were hills or single track, you, you know, you're just paddling a bike and hoping to survive. Yeah. Were, were you able to get in a few laps at Pato before? Is that, was that, I'm guessing Pato was still a trail back then. I, I know it's been around for a long time. So was that your training grounds throughout yeah, high school? Yeah, so I live, that's kind of what got us started really. Like Pato was probably two miles via dirt road to my house growing up in Pinckney. 
and I had my buddy Skyler. So we would we would connect, ride over via dirt road, and um, ride Pato. So that that's where we met the Beermans, and they brought us to our first race, and history was made after that. Yeah, we had Steve Brown on for our first episode, and he mentioned one of your uh, stories of falling in love with mountain biking it was riding with your dad, and it sounded like your dad went over the bars, and there was a snapping turtle something involved right there, and, and you were just like, exactly. this is great. Yes. Yeah, pretty much no feet, no hands, bouncing down the trail over the bars, and I followed him over the bars. And we both land in this puddle and then the snapping turtle just rises from the muck, kind of looks at us like, what are you two yahoos doing? (laughs) And then he like sunk back down. So that was definitely, again, one of those moments like, wow, we have no idea what we're doing. We really could have injured ourselves, but this is the best sport ever. Yeah. Was it the sense of adventure or like the competition side that you ended up liking more in the high school years? I think it was the sense of adventure um, in the beginning. Like back in the day, Skylar and I would look at mountain bike action magazine, you know, and there was pictures of trails in Colorado and trails in California and trails in Utah. And I think originally our dream was like, man, we need to check off the top 10 trails in the United States and, and do those trails. So that was kind of what sparked it for us. But next thing you know, instead of seeking out those trails, we were following the Norba racing circuit. Yeah. And was at, at that time, was did Norba racing circuit mean local races or were you uh, pretty quickly traveling uh, far farther than northern Michigan to get to those races? Yeah. Kind of when, <laughs> when did the pro movement for you as going from just a hobby to doing this for a living kind of start for you? When did you realize you were yeah, fast so... enough to do that? I think, yeah, 93 was the first couple races. Um, 94, I was like racing sport junior, getting into it a little more, starting to, you know, meet other people throughout the state of Michigan and and having that level of competition. Like, oh, I want to beat this guy from Grand Rapids or beat this guy from Traverse City. I think 95 um would be when I started getting really serious about the competition and it was the first time I traveled out of state so we went and did the Norba race in Mount Snow Vermont and went and did Norba well there was Shush Mountain up in Traverse City Shoshani Creek um and then Mountain Bike Nationals that year were in Helen Georgia and one of my main competitors in Michigan was John Mesco who's a Traverse City guy, and he won um, downhill junior national championships in Georgia. And that was kind of like, that was the, the, like, when the light switch flipped, like, well, Mesco just won national championships, and now he's on a plane to Germany to race in world championships. Like, wow, we could, we could do this. We could travel. We could be pros. So it was like when Mesco won junior nationals, that was like the man. There's hope. We can do this. You, you yeah. felt like you were you were close enough to him that you're like, I, I if I can I can beat him on a good day, and and that was kind of what made you go. That was it. Yeah, and earlier in that year, actually, up in Traverse City, I think I I finished second at a junior national um, or a Norba race. 
So kind of also had that own self-confidence. Um, but just there was a solid crew of juniors from Michigan who were doing the fun promotion series. And, you know, we were all pushing each other and all, you know, upgrading from junior expert to senior expert to semi-pro to pro. And we just all pushed each other along. And um, yeah, kind of, it kind of started from that moment when Mesco won in Georgia. So did, was there a big change in bringing it back to Iceman a little bit? Did you guys all end up riding together in kind of a pack and almost teaming up on some guys in, in a race uh, in that 95, 96, 97 years when right before you decided to go pro? That was, uh, that was definitely full on competition. Like we were all buddies and we were all traveling the, the Norba circuit. But when we, when we came back to Michigan, we wanted to be the best Michigan guy. So when we came to Iceman, which was the best Michigan race, it was full on competition. We wanted to beat each other. And were you guys all at the pointy end of the race at that point, or was that a few years off? Yeah. So I think, you know, again, I would have to look back at the results, but I want to say around 1995, 1996, that was like the first top 10 overall for Iceman for me. Um, I, I wouldn't remember who won in those years. Maybe John Shell, maybe Tinker Juarez was up there, but um, choiring Jason Swatlowski, John Myers, like those were the years where I was like, man, I think I can do it. I think I can beat these guys. I think I can win this race. What was it like to be at the, the front? I, that was when everybody raced in the beginning or was that an afternoon race? I think that was back in the day, we all started in one massive line. Like I think the start line had about 200 people wide on it. And we were starting, um, I don't remember if it was the middle school or the high school, but it was a mass start. All 2000 people started at once. You know, we went down, down some pavement roads um, through Kalkaska. People were crashing left and right. So it was a big mass start event back then. Yeah, so double the amount of people that start in a wave now, and you got all the fast guys in and get with uh, with the the guys that are just the weekend warriors and the first-timers. Everybody, everybody. So full chaos at the beginning of the race. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and then we see here 2004 looks like was a pretty, pretty big year for you, winning uh, Iceman for the first time and taking uh, the triple crown of the – kind of Midwest uh, dirt races there. Yeah. Yeah. That was so, so like 90, 97 was the first year I battled for the win at Iceman. So I actually, and for me, this is still like the best Iceman and the most motivating Iceman was 1997. I remember towards the end of the race, it, it was a muddy year towards the end of the race. Tilford's grip shift was just awful, right? His gears are jumping all around and I was feeling great. So I attacked in like, in my head, I I was going to win the race, but I was 18 years old or whatever. And I thought to myself, well, if I can attack now, I'm going to slow down, draft them a little bit more and attack later Mm -hmm. and win. I thought I was being smart. I had no idea where the finish line was I, and basically let the best tactician in bike racing back into the race. 
you know, three minutes later, Tilford sprints into the single track and I get fourth where I feel like I should have won. And that mistake taught me so much and was kind of like what really led me to believe like I, I can win Iceman one of these years for sure because I was just seconds away. And on that day, I was on a fully rigid bike. Yeah, and we, we talked about that on, on our episode with Alexi and, uh, and Steve that if you're in the pro men's race and in that little peloton at the front, if you look around and you don't see Brian Motter anywhere close to you, you might be in the wrong spot. You might want to <laughs> take a look around. So Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, from that early early one, you learned a lot and were able to take it. But, so from there until 2004, that was when you won your first Iceman. Did that um, almost podium at that time, did that catapult you into some success when you got out of house, high school? Did it? Did, yeah, did you find yeah, some it, race it, wins before? Yeah, it, it really did. So that, again, like that was, I, I realized I was battling with Steve Tilford, right? And he's one of the best road racers, cyclocrossers, mountain bikers, fat tire crit riders in the world. And that boosted my confidence again, like, hey, I can be doing this. So roughly 97 to 2004, I would say I was a little more focused on national racing. I was doing the full Norba circuit. And for that small period of time, I would say Iceman took a little bit of a backseat because I was more focused on those national level races. Um, and, and then around 2003, 2004, Norba mountain biking started declining. And that's probably when I moved back to the Midwest, spent more time in the Midwest and then started focusing on those triple crown races or to shore Shawamagon and Iceman where I could continue making money and the sport was thriving. What was your, uh, out of those seven years, um, what were, what was mountain biking like at that time? I know for, you know, a lot of people, uh, that have done Iceman for 25 years, like your plus years, like yourself, they were probably knew what was going on at that time. They're familiar with, who the, who the key players were, what the big races were. Like, what was what was exciting about mountain biking? I know that was, I've heard it was the golden age, but I'd be dating myself if I said I didn't know a lot about it. So, love to hear that, from someone who lived Yeah, that, that was like the heyday of mountain biking. Um, 97, 98, 99, you would, go, you would go to a Norba National mountain bike race, and there would be... Uh, what felt like 10,000 people in the woods watching at like the, the technical section that had like a, a title sponsor, like there was title sponsors for sections of trail back in the day. And there was so much money in the sport. When the races ended, there was a two hour long traffic jam to leave the venue. Like it was, it was big time, you know, and it was, Tomac and Ned Overin, Tinker Juarez and Dave Weens, uh, like the heroes of the sport for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, that was like the prime time and it was cool to just be like, just in the tail end of that to gain that or get that experience. Was it a prime time also for like the events themselves spectating and like, was, was it the amount of energy that Iceman brings or some of these other Midwest events are, from what I've seen, they're just known for the party and the atmosphere that they bring and they're electric. Um, and I know some cyclocross events, it can be like that as well. Is that how those, uh, Norba events were back 
back in that time? Yeah. Yes, definitely. Definitely. The, the Norba events. Yeah. There was people partying, there was people having fun. Um, yeah, there was huge spectator zones. And I think that's why, like, that's how I grew up mountain biking and that's what I loved about it. And that's why when I go and do Schwamagana and order shore and Iceman, especially Iceman, like the, the vibe at the finish line and, and the amount of spectators and the tunnel of noise when you're coming to the finish, it reminds me of that golden era of mountain biking. So yeah, you're exactly right. Like it is a continuation. Somehow these Midwest events um, have, have continued to hold on to that and really succeeded with that, um, I guess, philosophy and, and racing style. Yeah. yeah, I know that was a big time. That was when I started mountain biking and mountain biking in the area around Mount Holiday and, and Timber Ridge. And I remember I had a, it was a silver and blue, I think it was a Trek 4500, maybe. It was uh, aluminum or chromoly, I can't remember, but was was riding a, a Trek bike in the woods. And it, we know you've been a, a Trek rider for quite a while now, and they're one of our main sponsors and, and main supporters of the race. How, how long has your relationship with Trek been? I think my relationship with Trek um, started like unofficially in 2003 when I first moved to Wisconsin. Uh, coincidentally, um, you know, then, the next year you win Iceman in 2004. So, I mean, maybe a correlation there. Nah, it could be a correlation there. Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> 2004 was, I think 2003, I was actually on a Gary Fisher, um, which was part of the Trek family at the mm-hmm. time. But then 2004, um, was probably, um, you know, an old 26 inch hardtail track that was just lightning fast. Um, and then throughout the years I've, I've rode different variations, you know, of, of that hardtail I've done, uh, you know, the 69er with the 29er up front and the rigid fork I've done fully rigid 29er. Now I'm kind of in the mode of the traditional XE hardtail right now with a pro caliber. So yeah, it's been fun, um, being with Trek all this time and helping, um, develop some of their products as well. Yeah. When you say, I I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent, but I I did see that you, I'm guessing you do some testing for them, but were you also doing some designing a little bit on this, um, as more of a career parallel path to, to biking with them? No, not really designing, mostly testing, trying new things. Um, I think one of, one of the Iceman's, I don't remember which one, 2010 or 2014, I was on a prototype pro caliber. Um, and, and that was one of the years that I won. Um, so yeah, just mostly, mostly testing and, um, trying new things and providing feedback, uh, you know, with, with racing in so many different places, riding so many different places, uh, providing that feedback from different trail types um, is really beneficial for them. Yeah, and if, if they make something that fits you well and um, it, it benefits you too, I, I've i heard that you were one of the late adopters to the 29, and I guess we can swing we can swing that back around and say that you probably had more success on 26-inch wheels than most other people so wanted to stay on them longer. Yeah, exactly. I was, I was super comfortable. Um, I felt that I really learned how to make those 26 inch wheels go fast. Um, so for me, why make the change? 
And, and when they first came out with the 29er, I don't think the geometry was quite right yet. So, you know, 26 inch wheels have been around forever at the time and the geometry was really dialed for them. And then they introduce, you know, the 29er wheel and the geometry is not quite right, right out of the bat. So, um, yeah, it took a little while, you know, boost hubs started making it better and shorter rear chain stays. So the first couple of years, I was kind of hesitant and I like made multiple phone calls to track, seeing if I could buy out the rest of their inventory so I could ride 26 inch wheels the rest of my life. Yeah. But, uh, you know, eventually had to make the jump to 29er. For you, what was the, what made the switch? Was it, uh, they were just spending more money and the more kind of advanced suspension and, uh, geometry was being poured into the 29 inch and that was why you ultimately switched over? Yeah. And, and it was just, yeah, it was a dying breed. The 26 inch bike was a dying breed. So it was starting to get hard to find tires, to find wheels, and eventually that stuff just became obsolete. So um, the the 29er, after they dialed in the geometry, I did honestly feel like it was a faster bike. Mm-hmm. So I adapted. Um, I stopped being so stubborn and like so old school and realized the new bikes are, you know, just as faster, faster. Have you found that you've done that with other trends uh, through mountain biking? Um maybe held on to the tradition as even we progress, like the sport continues to progress uh, with, I, I haven't seen you do a lot, a lot of long gravel races, but you did say you just did a long ride. Um, you're keeping it more with cyclocross and the more old, old school mountain bike races. Um, have you been reluctant to make that switch too? Yeah, I'll probably, yes, I, I would say so. Like I, I truly really like, cyclocross and mountain biking and like traditional XE mountain biking. So I, I didn't, you know, jump on the single speed bandwagon or I haven't uh, went out and bought a fat bike and done fat bike racing. And I have also not bought a gravel bike and have really have not done any gravel racing. So kind of stick into what I really truly enjoy. Cause that's what motivates me right at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done a couple gravel races like back in the day before gravel became popular on a cyclocross bike. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm for right now, I'm sticking with what makes me happy and what motivates me. Nice. I know a lot of people have, uh, have followed where the industry has gone or where, where the race events gone. And I, I, that's awesome. You know, keeping with, with what, uh, what you really love to do on the bike and, um, making, making a path for the, the youth cyclists around to, to do that as well, showing them that it's still cool to, to do the, the races that have been around for a long time and the cyclocross, the old school mountain bike. I, I think a lot of people that do Iceman hope that there's more events like that um, and that they, they stick around and only grow. So I know that's what we hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah we I, oh, I totally agree. We're, I don't think we're having a hard time sticking around Iceman. It just sold out yeah. in a day. So yeah, it's, sold, I, it's already I, sold I, out. I don't think the it's going anywhere, but, uh, but yeah, that's mountain biking's here to stay. That's for sure. The fun starts before the race gun goes off. Make sure you stop by the Ice Cycle Expo presented by Forefront Credit Union. Special thanks to Forefront Credit Union for helping us provide a killer expo with all the vendors that you riders love seeing every year.
Thank you to Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan for their longtime sponsorship and support of the Iceman event. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan knows how to take care of their folks and our wonderful community partners. The Bissell Celebration Zone is a lot of fun. However, cleaning up the Bissell Celebration Zone can be a challenge. Make cleaning up your home easy. Check out Bissell's products and let them know you appreciate their support of Iceman. Thank you, Bissell, for all your continued support and sponsorship. Yeah, we know you're doing a lot with youth cycling. I know you've got uh, out in Arizona, worked a lot with that Arizona Devo program. I know you do a lot up in the UP and Keweenaw Peninsula cycling stuff up there and, and you're coaching uh, as a, you know, you're still racing a pretty hefty schedule, but I know a lot of coaching and how many athletes do you think you, that you're coaching actively are, are racing Iceman every year? I, I would assume there's a decent number there. Yeah. Yeah. I, a, a lot of my clients um, are from the Midwest, you know, Minnesota, Iowa, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois. So a lot of them, that's the key race of the year that they really want to do well at. So your um, phone is, is uh, awesome. your phone is blowing up that morning of everybody okay. telling you their results and giving you the lowdown on what the course is like. Oh, it's such an advantage for me. Like I, I <laughs> if I'm coaching 10 guys who just finished the race, I'm like, Hey, did it dry out? Or is there still a huge puddle right before Tornado Alley? Yeah. You know, I, I, I'll take any intel I can get before race day. That's, I, I, we all would. <laughs> That's, uh, exactly. I know Alexi was saying the same thing uh, for the last one, saying he's getting texts and looking at videos from the course. And um, so with, with the youth cycling, how, how long have you been doing that? When did that start that you wanted to get back? Sure. So um, I would say that started maybe about 15 years ago, probably. I started um, just doing some like fun side coaching and helping of a local collegiate team in Wisconsin where I lived in Sheboygan. Um, And that quickly kind of turned into an opportunity to... um, host or coach a junior mountain bike camp up in um, Houghton, Michigan at Michigan Tech University. So yeah, 12 to 13 years ago, I started doing that junior mountain bike camp. And from there, um, I just realized it was awesome to give back to the sport, Um, you know, to, to share my passion with the kids. And then to then later on watch these kids um, succeed in life, whether it was in the sport of cycling or in any other aspect of life. Have any of those kids, uh, beaten you at a race? I mean, they're not, uh, I'm sure if it was 15 years ago, a lot of them aren't kids anymore. Have you, yeah. uh, have you coached so well that somebody's taking your spot on a podium? Uh, unfortunately, I know I need to start coaching or charging those kids more for coaching, but yeah, there's, there's some kids who've done my junior mountain bike camp um, 10, 15 years ago who are definitely motivating me to continue to train hard. Um, and, and they are definitely the up and coming future of the sport. So yes, they are beating me and pushing me and um, yeah, I should charge them more money. For that's that's gotta be an interesting emotion going, you know, you're, you're a competitor. I know you're, a very serious competitor, but at the same time, you got to feel a lot of pride when you see 
an athlete like that that you've helped bring up to that level and and see them with their arms up at the finish line is got to be an interesting uh you're you're not happy that you didn't win but at the same time you're you're pretty excited for them yeah yeah so when the 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 hardest thing actually is like the pre-race conversation like hey what what should i do what's the strategy and i'm like oh man like can't give it away (laughs) what do i do at this point like i i want my athlete that i'm coaching to do the best possible but i'm now directly telling them what to do to beat me yeah you can't lie to them that's the most challenging part i would say you're just able to win multiple times in that race you know Maybe not the same, but you know, if they, if they win, you're probably too competitive for that, but <laughs> that's, yeah. you see somebody that you put in so much time to and kind of, uh, it's your win in a way. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It, you know, as soon as the race is on, it's game on. Like I, I don't care if I coach them or not, like I will attack, I will draft, I will, you know, do whatever I got to do to win the race. Yeah. But as soon as we're finished, I'm super happy and it's awesome to be able to analyze the whole race and be like, hey, I, I saw you do this. Why why did you attack and waste your energy when we were only, you know, three miles into Iceman? Like that that was just a waste of energy. So to be able to turn around and coach like exactly right in that moment to see what they did right, to see what they did wrong. Um, it's, it's super cool opportunity to be able to do that. A lot of other coaches aren't right there with their athletes right in the heat of battle. So, um, as of right now, I'm going to, I'm going to continue doing it as much as possible. And I know soon they're going to be beating me more and more, but, um, you know, then I can take that stance of, Hey, those are, those are those kids that I've been helping for the last 10 years. And now they're the best in the country. Yeah. So what, what would you, uh, what would you tell one of your athletes uh, for you know? Let's say that they're not in the pro race yet. They're in. Let's say they're in the first wave, and they're looking for some advice on how to get out of the uh, airport alive. <laughs> what What are you gonna? What kind of advice are you gonna give them? Well, the the advice that I always give everybody, anybody I coach, um, is that the the race at Iceman starts before for the race even starts. So I have multiple people uh, who race Iceman and they, they tell me, oh, I, I lined up in the seventh row. I got, to the, I got to the start a little bit late. So I was in the seventh row. Like, how, how, like seventh row, I'm surprised you didn't die 20 times. Yeah, like, I'm surprised you, you never ran be, over. <laughs> yeah, you, you really got to be prepared. You got to be on time. You got to get your warm up in and you got to try to line up in the front row or the second row like that is critical for Iceman if you're not up there right away you're already putting yourself at a disadvantage so man you've done all this training all this hard work why put yourself at a disadvantage before the race even starts so that's like advice number one like be prepared get there early and get a good start spot on the grid and that's more that's going to be more important than your 20 minute warm up with some openers if you miss it. Um, obviously, you want to get them both in, but is the start spot more important than those openers? Probably because you could probably fake it for that first three minutes 
you know, wrapping around the airport and get into the single track in a good spot. But if you're, if you're warmed up and you're like so ready to go, but you're in the 10th row, you're not going anywhere. Yeah. You're just stuck back there. And then you're, you're just battling the entire time. So that's definitely advice. Number one, like be prepared, get there early, get your, get your good start spot on the grid. Yeah. We were just talking about you debriefing with your athletes and some of your tips and tricks, I guess, without giving away too much, you know, you got to keep some of your tricks up your sleeve, but those four years that you did win, is there a moment in each one of those races that you can, you can kind of go, Oh yeah, I, I want it here when I made this move. I'll, I'll answer that by saying in, in the other 20 years, I lost it in that same spot, you know? So you, you lose Iceman 20 times to be able to win it four times. So that's, that's probably my answer. Each race is a little bit different and where the critical part of the race happens is a little bit different but I lost it so many times or I made so many mistakes and learned from those mistakes that then I figured out a couple times, like when was the exact right time to make that move or, you know, the, the one year super muddy, the, the critical move happened two miles into the race, you know, so muddy, the, the front group split. It was me three Canadians and, um, you know, maybe Cole House and Isaac Neff. And the race was over two miles into the race. So then it was just a little game of cat and mouse against six guys instead of against a hundred guys. So that, that doesn't happen too often that the race is decided that early, but usually, you know, it comes down to the Vasa trail and a couple key Hills at the end. Um, I think one year, super, super muddy. Like, I I think it was more of like a get to the front early and then nobody can pass you kind of year. Um, so yeah, it's every year is a little bit different, but it's, it's about being patient and usually saving that energy for the last five or six K. I'd say 20 or four out of 20 is pretty good. And you must learn a lot faster than everybody else because no, (laughs) nobody else has matched that ratio of wins (laughs) wins to losses. Four out of 20 wins. And, and we, We've been trying to figure out. We don't know how many podiums, but it's a significant number of podiums, especially considering you know two years ago. I think you were still, or actually, were you? Yeah, you were podium last year, correct? Yeah, I think I think I was on a pretty good streak of two thousand. Well, maybe two thousand. It didn't happen, but eighteen, nineteen, twenty-one, and then this year didn't quite make it, but. Yeah, I think I had done the last four editions on the podium, so. Yeah, um, and I know 21 yeah. was a year that that was a very, that was a bunch sprint up the, up icebreaker that was very, we saw that video from, uh, from Kerry Warner, and it was some really exciting racing there at the end of the race. Yeah, and that's, a, that's another one I felt like I potentially had the legs to win. But I, at some point in time, going into the last single track, I let Cole go in. So I rode to the bottom of the icebreaker and fourth wheel. I felt like I had the legs to do it, but I kept telling myself, be patient, be patient, be patient. And then there's, there's a photo where it's three wide going up icebreaker and I've got like nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. So, you know, being patient at that moment didn't pay off. And again, 
you know, that's like that 97 version. Um, there's a couple other times where I felt like I really could have won 97 being one. I think one year Simonson won. I felt like I could have had a really good shot at winning, but I didn't. Um, and then there was another year where it was um, Sam Schultz and Kabush and I was third and it was the same story. Like be patient, be patient, be patient. Oh man, we're going 40 miles per hour and there's nowhere left to pass them. So um, yeah, you learn from those mistakes and, and I guess four out of 20 or four out of 25, you get it right. That's, that's pretty good. Um, do you, we'd love to hear some stories just of 04, 07, 10, 14 of the wins. I, I know I, I was just looking back at the history and you start reading some articles and you're like this, it, Brian likes to play in the mud. He's pretty, <laughs> pretty good at uh, those conditions. And it seems like it's almost just an advantage or your superpower that you can uh, do so well in those. But do you have any stories from um, maybe starting with the first one and just going through where, there are things that you're going to hold on forever. I mean, all four, the first win, obviously kind of after winning Ordishar and after winning Shawamagon was something that was pretty special. And still to this day, nobody else has won all three events as in, in that year in all four, I think I won all three events, but my total, margin of victory for the three races was like less than two seconds. So each, each of those three wins in 2004 or to um, and Iceman was a super close race. Um, and Iceman that year, I just remember it was down to me and Jesse Jackamate in the very, very bottom of icebreaker Hill. I attacked and if, you know, when you're, I don't know how old I was then, 2004. I will say I was 21 or something. When you're 21 and you think you can win a race, probably the hardest I've ever attacked in my whole life. I was like, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to win the triple crown. You know, it was one of those moments like that. That one was definitely pretty cool. 2007, um, the probably thing that I remember the most about that one was um, Colt McElwain was doing, um, you know, like a video. And I think at the time he was doing a ton of cyclocross videos. I think it was called Cycling Dirt or something like that. I wish the video was still around. I'm not sure if it is or not. But um, I remember crossing the finish line and actually Mesco was there. And Mesco like tackled me, gave me this big hug. And Colt from Cycling Dirt had the camera in my face. And, um, you know, he was he was super psyched. And he pointed the camera at the other guys who were in the race. And he was like, that guy was a national champ. That guy was a national champ. That guy was a national champ. And that guy was a national champ. And you just beat them all. You know, and I was like, that that was cool. Like, I guess I just did beat a lot of really like key players in in US mountain biking. Yeah. Um so that 2007, that one special. And then you know, you you won your second Iceman. 2010, I think 2010 might have been one where I attacked from pretty far out. Um, similar to when Alexi won his first race, he attacked pretty far out on the Vasa, and I held that gap maybe over JHK and, and Simonson. And then I think one of those two crashed in the final corner. I don't remember that one uh, 
quite as well, but I remember one where I tapped pretty far out and and I think the the group was playing tactics and and that helped me. And then the the last win was that super, super muddy one um, where the the break went um, two or three miles into the race. And it was me, Kabush, uh, Derek Zanstra, Cameron Jett, and those were three Canadians on the same team. And um, I remember battling Kabush in the last bit of single track, super muddy, you know, just just nowhere to go. It was all about traction and just keeping it upright. And I beat him. And afterwards, uh, he came up to me and he was like, man, that was that was one of the smartest races I've ever seen anybody do. Like you beat me and two teammates. And like that compliment from Kabush has stood with me a long time to, you know, be a good racer, but also be a good, smart and tactical racer. At that point, uh, you know, going for your fourth win, I, I'm, I'm guessing the Canadians were, were playing the, the team card pretty hard. Uh, I, I can't imagine that they were playing nice with the, that small of a group and, you know, the bodies to pull through and maybe cut some corners or, or not, you know, not, not being ruthless about it, but I can imagine what happens out there on the course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it was basically me against three Canadians. Like they were sending flyers attacking. And I think, you know, I think they were making these moves to set up Kabush and Kabush was just trying to be patient, 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 but it was so muddy towards the end. I just happened to get into the single track before him. And then there was just, it was so hard to accelerate to make a pass towards the end that I think he ran out of real estate, similar to how I ran out of real estate in previous years. Was equipment choice. I, it sounds like you always take, um, a, pretty big consideration just on what kind of bike you're riding, but we haven't, surprisingly, we haven't talked about tires at all. And usually that's the first thing that everybody's asking for Iceman, what tires you're going to ride, what tires are, you know, how thick, what kind of tread and what's going to be the fastest. I'm sure in a year like that, like uh, equipment did make a difference. Um, uh, do you think you were, uh, you had made the smart decision on that level as well, or was it more of an even playing field? No, I think, I mean, I don't want to jinx myself for 2023, but luckily um, every year at Iceman, I've had uh, really good equipment, really good choices and tires and tire pressure. I think that year um, I was just running a XR2 from Bontrager, which at the time um, and still is one of my favorite all around tires. Like it does great in the dry. It also does great in the mud. It's not like a super aggressive mud tire, um, but the XR2 with a little bit of a lower tire pressure, just had, I, I was super comfortable on my bike that day. Um, and that was it. And, you know, my shifting was perfect. I've, I've been on Shimano stuff forever. So my bike has been, every year guys, man, my bike has been really, really good, even in some of those mucky, snowy, gnarly editions of the race. Do you do you change in between a hardtail or a full suspension depending on whether it's muddy or or a dry day? I've always used a hardtail okay. at Iceman. That seems like the right bike for 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 some, especially yourself. It's probably going to be the fastest. But um, was that 
I mean, Kabush has run drop bar before, and um, you've seen some other people doing interesting things. You know, uh, full suspensions are really have come a long ways as well, uh, especially with lockouts and things like that. Do you think that'll continue to be the case for you? Yes. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've done Iceman enough that I think without a doubt, the hardtail mountain bike is the fastest bike. Um, I know, I know Kabush did the drop bar bike and Jerry Warner was up there with the drop bar bike a couple years ago. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to keep it old school, keep it traditional, keep the Iceman mountain bike, uh, name going and, and stay on the mountain bike. Alexi said the same thing, and I think we'd break Steve's heart if you said you were going to drop a, or <laughs> ride a drop bar bike. So um, <laughs> I don't want to break Steve's heart either. No, yeah. no, he he loves you too much. It, that would that would hurt him. <laughs> well, Brian, we we do want to you know get some some good stories out of you. So obviously, we've had a, a lot of good times in the Bissell uh, celebration zones. Our friends at Bissell helping us clean up after Iceman, and we appreciate their support over the years. But there's some great stories at the at the course in the celebration zone, but we've got uh, some other stories that we've heard throughout the years, including uh, if people want to check out Brian on social media, his Instagram handle is the Wisco Disco. And I'm told, I don't have the whole story just yet, but I'm, I'm told it originates from Iceman. If you could uh, give us a little one of the old bars in Traverse City that used to be a hangout and had a, a little bit of a show that would go on for dinner theater. <laughs> and I'm heard, I've heard you were a star at least one of those nights. Yeah. Yeah. Um, man, I don't know if I could remember the year right off the top of my head, but maybe it was 1999. Um, and there was a bar called Dill's. I don't know if it was a bar or a restaurant, bar restaurant, but on Saturday nights at Dill's, they had karaoke, and um, I believe the woman's name is Laura. I don't know her last name, but she was known as the karaoke queen. She often sang the Star Spangled Banner at the start of Iceman back in the day in this, like, amazing Viking dress with, like, a horned helmet, and she would be out there <laughs> singing, um, yeah, the national anthem. So, yeah, 1999, uh, me and a bunch of friends decided to uh, wear full-on disco clothes, um, including about a six-inch pair of platform shoes where the platform was actually a spring. Um, and we, we got up there and did some karaoke, but uh, as you can guess, I would be a horrible singer. Um, so we let Laura do the singing and um, me and my buddies did the dancing. So we were having fun. And then somebody decided to put my name in for um, the Weather Girls, It's Raining Men. <laughs> and so I went up there and did a solo with, with Laura um, singing It's Raining Men. And I was pretty much just dancing up there by myself. We were just having a good time. Um, but that was 99. We had, we had kind of grew up at that point in time we were living just outside of Ann Arbor we spent a lot of time at the Nectarine Ballroom which on Wednesday nights was a disco club in Ann Arbor a lot of University of Michigan students having fun and again if you wore disco clothes you could 
um, get into the nectarine ballroom for free. So as a poor cyclist, I was like, man, I'll go to the thrift store, buy some disco clothes and save the $5 entry fee to the nightclub. And then we'd dance all night long. So I think that was kind of the beginning of the Wisco Disco. Um, a good night doing It's Raining Men with the karaoke queen. And and maybe if you're lucky, you could find a video of it somewhere out there uh, on we'll, the interweb. We'll definitely have to, we're going to have to start searching for that. Yeah. I think, you know, through some help from some of the uh, the other cyclists, we might be able to find something. Yeah, we're going to have 5,000 people looking for I, that. I have Probably s- harder than they race. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I have seen these shoes and, and as a, you know, you were, in the throes of becoming a pro athlete, I feel like th- those shoes were risky to wear. I mean, they were an injury waiting to happen. They were, they did not look stable. They were so good. I actually have them here in Prescott. Do you really? Um, you still bust I, them out? I haven't, and... They're, they're dry rotting just a little bit, but actually, uh, again, I was with Skylar. We were in Venice, Italy after doing mountain bike world championships. We're walking around in these, it was like a scene from a movie. We saw these like disco shoes right there. They're probably two feet tall, right? The, the spring is six inches. And then the boot itself is like a Michael Jackson, sparkly and green and shiny. <laughs> yeah. And these things were like in the window of a store in Venice, Italy. And the price tag said like 2 million lira. And we were like, we, we don't even know what that means. You but just we knew went you had to have them. I had to have them. And, and like... I've got this amazing sequence of photos, like buying them, trying them on, and then like partying afterwards. We'll leave the details out. But yeah, um, yeah those it? shoes were special. Still got them today. And uh, yeah, maybe one of these years again, um, we can talk to somebody about hosting like a disco party after Iceman. Oh, I, I think there you, you just made it happen, Brian. I yeah. don't think you have to say more than that. Um, well, <laughs> We'll uh, we'll talk to Brady's or yeah. or Dill, Boots and Dills or uh, maybe the Keen Loft can throw a disco party for you this year. Um, that would be amazing. I would be so stoked. Yeah, I you know I I could see a lot of people drinking beer out of one of those shoes too. <laughs> <laughs> that that might be the new trophy. That'll be yeah. like the that that'll be the the participation trophy for everybody else that came to the party afterwards. Yeah. So yeah. you can yeah, well it might be pretty gross to drink out of a pair of shoes that are from 1999 have, have been through that. quite a few nights of disco dancing but if you want to do it I'll probably uh offer them up. I've seen weirder <laughs> things after Iceman so and you know Bells Bells says they're only bringing double two hearteds now or at least that's what it gets down to by the time the pros are there so everybody's a little uh, little excited it would probably be all about that so <laughs> yeah so well Brian thank you so much for joining us we we'd love we I think there there are so many stories through your long storied career with Iceman we're definitely gonna have to have you back on and and talk maybe some more tactics maybe right before the race we'll see if we can get some more details out of you that'd be awesome can. I'd be happy to do it got a, right. a few quick questions um, kind of rapid fire um, I you know, you, you went right into the first one. Uh, what would your karaoke song be? But so you, you had yeah. that one. Have it's you raining sang, men. I think is the only option he has now. Have you sang karaoke since, and or is that still your go-to? I mean, I I do, again, I do not sing karaoke. But if I were to dance, I would definitely have to do another rendition of "It's Raining Men" by the Weather Girls. Okay. All right. Well, the, the next question we asked uh, Alexi this, um, if you were out on a, a six-hour mountain bike ride and you could only eat one food, what are you going to eat? 
Oh, and we did say it, it's uh, what food, non-cycling uh, specific. Yeah. So not no like a chews, gels no or gels whatever. Like. Or, um, seems like you've been doing a lot of those out in Prescott. Not that I just I went through your Strava or anything, but <laughs> seems like you've been training a lot. So well, if you could only eat one thing, what would it be? <laughs> if I were if I were in Arizona, uh, it would be a tamale. I would have I'd have like three or four tamales in my Camelback. Okay, might if get a I little messy. Sheboygan, but... <laughs> Boygan would definitely be some bratwurst. Okay. Solid fuel in both, but it's got to be specific to the region, right? I wouldn't want to yeah. eat a brat in the middle of the desert. That makes sense. Yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> it's like wine tasting. You got to have the right pairing with the right environment. Yeah. Exactly. Or Bell's tasting. Yeah, Bell's. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but, and then the last one, um, this one's specific, uh, but if you were going to race Iceman single speed, what uh, what gear would you choose, and what bike? <laughs> well, I would definitely be on a Trek Pro caliber. I would probably do like a thirty six front chain ring, maybe sixteen. Okay. Thirty six sixteen. Does that sound Does that sound reasonable? I think people would have a very hard time keeping up with you. <laughs> I think you know it's got to be a big enough gear where you can pedal the majority of the race and. Maybe you muscle it up a hill or two, but I think a 36-16 would be pretty solid. Yeah. If you put that with 26-inch wheels, do you think anybody else could beat you? <laughs> I don't think anybody else has 26-inch wheels anymore. I got a couple in the back shed here. Yeah. Well, but, um, yeah, it would be fun. It would be fun to do that for sure. They'd put it in a bid to make an old-school wave where that's all you can ride is 26 and single speed. That'd be pretty... <laughs> I think my money would be on you for sure. But um, <laughs> uh, last question, I, you know, I think you're going to do it again and you've been incredibly close the last couple of years. You're, you're training, you know, a lot of folks to take your place in the future, but I don't think they're quite there yet. And uh, the competition's pretty stiff, but what would it mean for you to win Iceman again? What would that? Uh, it would be, it would be amazing. Like I, I really think I was really close to being able to do it in 2021. Um, as of right now, I still think it's in my legs. Um, and, and it's definitely in my heart to train hard enough to do it. Um, so yeah, it would, it would just be like, you know, depending on when, when it might happen, it might be one of those mic drop moments, like just, that's it. Yeah. I'm done. I did it again. Now I'm done. Um, but it would mean a lot, you know, it's a special race. I've been doing it. You could basically say I've been doing it my whole life. Um, I'd have to do the math again, but 93 and I missed one in the middle there somewhere. So maybe this is number 27, 28, 29 this year. Um, man, it's just a special race for me. And I, I don't know, there, there's so many different things that that go into it that make it that but you know that moment when steve gave me that 25th edition jersey was super special to be able to win one more time would also be super special um but we'll we'll see what happens yeah. all well, right we'll be pulling for you i know uh if you do it'll be a hell of a race and uh, there'll be a lot of people well you've always got a lot of people there uh cheering you on but uh that'd be a special moment. And so 
Great. Well, thank you so much, Brian. We'll uh, we'll catch back up with you again before Iceman for sure, and and get some more uh, some more hot takes on on how to take down the Ice Trophy. Thank you and cheers to Brady's. We appreciate the support and sponsorship. Stop by for a great bite to eat and a welcoming atmosphere. It is a wonderful neighborhood establishment, and it is a must on any night out, especially after Iceman or maybe before Iceman too. There's one car company that is able to get you through the woods better than your bike. You guessed it, Subaru. Choose Subaru for all your adventuring. And don't forget, if you drive a Subaru, you have a chance to park in the Subaru VIP area this November. But it does fill up fast. Thank you, Subaru. 